0: Hi, I'm Chinny And I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's the Continent, the podcast that widens access to African history. We're also the co-authors of a book by the same name. You can find out more information about us on itsacontinent.com. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and appreciate the identity of each nation, and through each episode we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to another episode of It's a Continent. This week we're going to be doing a rerun and we thought it might be quite timely to replay the conversation that we had with Hazel Najinda where we talked about climate activism within the African continent and um, yeah we really enjoyed this conversation so we hope you enjoy listening. We'll be back next week. See you then.
1: Hello and welcome to this season's bonus episode. Today, we're talking about climate change, but from an African perspective, obviously, because it's us. And we kind of both felt that this is an area that's been neglected in mainstream coverage, particularly here in the UK. So today, we're joined by Hazel Najinda. She is a climate and environmental activist from Uganda. She's also the founder of Climate Operation, a youth-led organisation whose mission is to educate Ugandan children and communities about climate change as well as its intersection with other social issues. Hazel is passionate about creating a more inclusive space where young people's voices are amplified and through Climate Operations storytelling series young people get to share their experiences of how the climate crisis has not only impacted them but what they're doing to ensure that they advocate for a safer, cleaner and fairer environment. So I'm really excited about this conversation with Hazel.
0: What an introduction! Hi Hazel, welcome to the show. We're really, really excited to have you on. Before we get into it, and also for our listeners who haven't yet come across your story and your work, our standard usual first question is, where are you from? Or where are you really from?
2: Oh, you guys, you had like the best intro ever. I loved it. (laughs) I mean, okay. Hi everyone. My name is Hazel Najinda. I'm from Uganda and I currently live in Uganda, in Kampala, which is the capital city of Uganda. And uh, as Astrid and Chini have said, I'm a climate educator, environmentalist, a lawyer as well, and the
1: founder of Climate Operation. You kept lawyer. I was... Oh, sorry. So not, I was,
0: only,
1: yeah. not only, Not <laughs> only.
0: We'll add lawyer to the introduction next time.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Hazel, tell us a bit more. I know in our introduction we mentioned climate operation, but can you tell us a bit more about the work you're doing?
2: Yeah, so basically, um, the vision behind climate operation and basically why I founded it was I was actually in law school and we were studying about oil and gas and how developing countries are just bringing in fossil fuels while developed countries are bringing in renewable energy. And of course, in my mind, I was asking myself, "Hmm, that's actually quite ironic because, you know, the climate crisis is hitting developing countries worse (laughs) than developed countries. So we actually need renewable energy faster than the developed world. And of course, when I say having these conversations with my classmates, most of them actually did not even think the climate crisis was very relevant to us because it's such a whitewashed message. So I think that's how Climate Operation came about. Because in my mind, I was like, if we start educating people about climate change is when we shall actually start seeing relevant climate innovations start happening, especially in developing countries. And yeah, that's how it all started. I am proud to say that we have been able to educate 1,000 young children about climate crisis. Very cool. We we have been able to involve them as well in climate activism. We planted 650 indigenous trees because we're all about the indigenous. Indigenous trees grow quite slowly, but they're very sustainable. They'll be there for a while. So we're able to do that. Then we also involve them in other activities like art activities. And then this year, we're really diving deep in how can we engage them in these conversations, you know, because Something about climate conversations, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this, is that it's usually the old people that are the, are the ones that are making the decisions and young people actually just don't have that platform. So this year with climate operation, what we're trying to do, we're trying to give young people the platform and the space to actually give their opinions on what's happening. then hopefully us as climate operation can actually take these experiences and these stories to the policymakers so the people in power to actually do something about it.
0: 100 percent And you mentioned around taking the message to policymakers. How have different communities responded to the work that you have been doing through climate operations so far? Well, that is a very interesting very good question.
2: Well when we've, when we've been going to communities, something that we've been realizing is that when it comes to, like, for example, climate change, everyone talks about how it's all about the weather because that is what they see. So actually going deeper into it and now bringing a human aspect to it. Like, for example, we went to our community, we were talking to them about, you know, how the climate crisis is impacting them. And of course, most of them were saying, yes. Because of, let's say, uh, because of the dry seasons, we cannot actually harvest that much. But then the moment we started telling them how this, for example, is impacting their livelihood, their source of income, that is when they started talking about questions of like, you know, what can we start doing about this? So the moment you bring in the human aspect is when most of the people that we are talking to, they are really inspired to start talking about how can we actually mitigate this, which I'm finding very interesting. Because if we actually dehumanize the climate crisis, then no one really cares. But the more we humanize it in communities is when we are starting to see a lot of conversations around mitigation, which I think is very positive. So that is the, can I say, the experiences that I've had. When we dehumanize it, everyone is just not really concerned. But then the moment we start bringing in human impacts, which I think is an aspect of climate justice, that is when people start to really want to this and they're like, hmm, what can we actually do? About this because then they are starting to put themselves in those shoes as well.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. It makes sense, isn't it? As it becomes a lot more of a reality for someone if you can relate it in terms of this is how it impacts you or impacts the future of your family. Another thought we would wanted to look into is, you know, one of the initiatives of climate operation is kind of supporting intersectionality within the climate change space. So where does this intersection lie and when did you make that connection this
2: intersection came in I think the moment we started doing the community work right because if I'm being honest with you both when I say climate operation I actually did not know that much about what was happening I would, I, I would be honest with you and I would say mostly as well relying on the climate education that I was reading off the news and basically from books But it's until I actually went into the communities and for example, in slums, and then that is when we saw that because of plastic pollution, people actually in those slums, like for example, they are really, really poor. So because of plastic pollution, the health impacts because of that are really bad. Then usually when it comes to farming and the way the climate crisis has impacted them, majority of these farmers are women and they're actually small-scale farmers. So that is also really impacting them as well, not only from a gender perspective, but from an economic perspective. So intersection, can I say intersectionalizing everything is when, I, is this when we realize that we need to tackle this, not just as like, let me say, climate change alone. But then we need to actually look at it like, for example, with climate change, with gender, climate change, with health. Because the moment we start bringing those other aspects, for one will actually be bringing the people aspect to it. But then also when it comes to the policymakers as well, because here in Uganda, reaching policymakers is actually quite difficult. But the moment you start tackling things like, let's say, gender, health, which are very key in policy, education, another key aspect, and not just climate change. That's when policymakers start listening too, because now you're actually talking about things that they want to solve. They do want to solve something to do with gender equality, something to do with the health, something to do with education. So climate operation, talking about intersectionality and just merging all these issues with climate change has really helped because now we are getting to see people in power wanting to actually listen to what we want to do. And I think that is why it's just been amazing.
1: And around that kind of humanising piece that you were talking about, obviously um kind of looking at studies and stuff there's going to be i think it was estimated that by 2100 rainfall will be more frequent and more intense um in uganda there'll be more floods more dry spells and obviously that has a massive impact on agriculture which is a major source of um income and kind of within the um economy how has climate change impacted this sector so far
2: well, uh, the right, can I just say food insecurity, for one, is actually something that's become worse in Uganda because of the climate mm-hmm. crisis. So because now our weather, can I say our weather patterns, they're quite unstable. So when it comes to it being really hot, like right now I was telling you we're in Ugandan summer, <laughs> and it's actually quite hot. And uh, thank God it has been, it, it rained, let's say, last month, but then because our weather patterns are so unstable, we don't know when it will rain again. So that makes it quite hard for small scale farmers to actually plan ahead because they actually do not know how long am I actually not going to plant. So because of that, food insecurity is on the rise. But then this is something I think we also need to talk about when we're talking about, can I say, the impacts of climate change on people, right? Which I think from a wider, can I say a wider aspect, sometimes I think when we are talking about climate change and the climate crisis, we tend to focus on the negatives. And I think the more we focus on the negatives, it to a point desensitizes people about it. Uh, I would give an example in Uganda. So we had floods in Kasese district. It's a district here in Uganda. And what happened when these floods happened is that it actually internally displaced so many people. And they were all right now, they're all in an IDP camp called Mohocha IDP camp. But then what's really amazing about this is he, a young person, he has a group. It's called a bayuti Action. So he was able to mobilize resources for these people who, in my opinion, actually, they didn't know what to do next after what happened to them. So the way in which we communicate about climate change, I think we always need to find a balance whereby we're not just talking about the negative aspects. Because then that will actually make people in their minds wonder, oh, if everything is just, you know, if everything is bad, then I can't do anything about it. But just trying to also show that, you know, people are actually doing amazing things. They might not be known (laughs) because, yeah, Mm -hmm. but then they are really doing amazing things. I think when it also comes to like how we communicate about it, we always need to find that balance. So, yes, that that would be the wider context I would have with the climate crisis from Uganda. whereby yes there is the, the bad impacts that are happening. And of course, unfortunately, it is actually the people that do not have the resources that are at the brunt of it all. But despite of that, there are people in the communities who are doing really amazing things, trying to support and give back, which I think is very cool.
0: And in terms of those stories, like the positive aspects that have been happening in response to the climate crisis, what was the media coverage like in Uganda? Would you be able to shed some light on what? What are they highlighted at the moment, if anything, at this point? Huh. <laughs> I would say, <laughs> I would say um,
2: something like climate change. It's, it's quite tricky in Uganda. Um, let me give an example of, let's say, deforestation, right? Mm-hmm. So in Uganda, uh, with they cut down trees all the time, but usually they're cutting down those trees because... The government actually has to create land for, um, let's say, for farmers to plant their crops or let's say they want to give land to industries. Like I remember there was a time when they cut down a huge chunk of land, of, of trees to actually give to a factory to plant rice, which everyone was in uproar about. When it comes to climate change in general, the news is not very keen on it because it has a political aspect to it. But then something that we're always talking about, which as well died down, was plastics. (laughs) There's a time when the media was kind of giving a lot of attention about how we need to stop using plastics. We call them caveras. So we're talking about how we need to stop using caveras. But then from that, it kind of died down because what started happening was when you would go to the store, the store is now giving you your goods in your hands. So people started complaining that, oh, we cannot actually go to stores and carry out our, our groceries in our hands. So the government had to backtrack that, that, that ban on, on polythene bags to bring it back. So I think when it comes to the media, it's a bit tricky. Not a lot is being said. So it's basically individual, can I say climate activists and, and uh, environmentalists that are just out there being public about their causes. and a point calling out what's happening. Like I know he's a colleague of mine, he's called mulindwa Moses. They're cutting down a forest. It's called Bugoma Forest. And he went on Twitter and was really like very, very loud about it. Something that happens here is the more loud you are is when you actually get listened to because it's quite hard to, for policymakers to listen to you. So he was really, really loud and got a lot of support. And that is when the government actually you know kind of paused the cutting down of the tree. When it comes to media and climate change, there's kind of like a pushback whereby how loud are you for your cause to actually be noticed is how it is because there 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 are a few political aspects to it as well.
1: It seems to me that like, based on what you're saying, it's very much when it comes to kind of climate change at a grassroots level, you know, and if you're able to get the attention from government, then you could potentially see it influencing policies. At a government level, have they got, I know you just mentioned around Uh, plastic bags that they then had to be like okay no we're bringing them back (laughs) but uh you know what have they got kind of um climate change environmentally focused policies in place at the moment at a government level you know do they have a minister of environment or something like is is that a part of the discourse
2: oh yes we actually have a Minister of Environment, and we also have a Climate Change Act. It was actually passed last year. And the most interesting thing, I was doing a bit of research on this act. Um, it was a bill before, and the reason why it wasn't being passed was because its gender considerations were lacking. And that made me very happy because, you know, as we always talk about everything, it's always intersectional. So by the fact that The Ugandan policymakers in their their minds thought, no, this bill cannot be passed because it does not meet certain gender considerations. Because if we are being honest, women are to a point among the most impacted by the climate crisis in Uganda. So after them adding those gender considerations is when it was passed last year. And I think that was a very good thing. And I read through it. And it's really good. Of course, something that's happening here is that we have very amazing policies. But the implementation is lacking. So, for example, we have the Environmental Act. We have the Climate Change Act. Uh, we also have other kind of like, can I say, community policies. But the thing that's lacking with this is their implementation. And of course, the reason why they are not being implemented is because the people that they actually have to benefit to a point also just do not know how they're going to benefit from them. So there is that gap whereby, like, for example, let's say I Hazel have a degree in law. So to a point, I do understand policies. So if I, let's say, want to, let's say the people in Kasese to understand how, let's say, the Climate Change Act is going to uh, benefit them I'll have to go and actually tell them about it. So there's that gap whereby the people, the communities do not, to a point, understand how these laws can benefit them. So that's why they're not being implemented as fast. But the positive about this is that the laws exist. So there's just that
1: need for them to be implemented in communities. And I guess that also comes back to that point you said around education and the importance of it, isn't it? You're not going to be completely in, in terms of a policy, if you don't really understand how it's benefiting you and yeah. what, yeah, how it's going to be impacting you and your community moving forward. So I guess it reinforces really that message yeah. as well.
0: Another thing we wanted to discuss was the concept of greenwashing. This might be something that could be relevant to in terms of like policy. Um, that we've often seen in the UK so from our perspective we know that sometimes greenwashing has clouded the climate change movement so there was a time in the UK where like (laughs) say someone like Coca-Cola was saying stuff around the environment but actually they were still you know producing a lot of plastic bottles. Mm -hmm. Has a similar strategy played a role in hindering the climate change movement in Uganda and what are your views on greenwashing and how that may be impeding the the process as well as the issues that you highlighted earlier. Well, for one, I think greenwashing. Companies that greenwash here in Uganda
2: are actually quite smart in the way they do it. They provide employment opportunities, <laughs> which is something that young people are really, you know, struggling with. So, when, for example, you provide employment opportunities, Uganda is building. Actually, not, not building. We just signed a new oil and gas pipeline uh, contract with uh, oil and gas companies. So those, those, the, the company is actually going to be providing jobs for people, bringing in more investment for the country. So when it comes to greenwashing in Uganda, it's not really about the product because if I'm being honest, in Uganda, we actually just take what you have. We don't have the, that many options. Yeah, But the way it happens here is that these companies that are, to be honest, just polluting, not just the continent, but they are polluting the world in general. They come in with these things that our government cannot just do away with with because to a point it's benefiting the the citizens. So, for example, in terms of offering them employment, bringing in more investments for the country. So that is what happens here. So that is how greenwashing comes in from a context of Uganda. Not necessarily how, let me give an example, of a greenwashing campaign that I saw um, Mm -hmm. It was over, I saw it on the internet. It was over over a company that was selling uh, water. Of course. And the person person opened the bottle and it was actually plastic inside, but on top
0: it was cardboard. And I was like, what? Wait, sorry. Wait, 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 wait. We need to. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) Exactly.
1: Okay.
2: (laughs) If I'm being honest, it was very, very interesting whereby you're selling, you know, sustainable water. Because because usually someone will be like, oh, I can recycle this bottle, so let me buy it. Until the person actually cut the bottle and there was a, another plastic bottle inside the but I was like, huh, oh my
0: that is very goodness.
2: interesting. <laughs> so for us, here, it's not really about the products because we don't really have, so we don't have sustainable products, but people here really just buy what they can afford. And mm. if I'm being honest with you, when it comes to Uganda, I would say we, ha- we have we, to a point we are a bit sustainable just because we do not know we are sustainable. For example, mm-hmm. almost all of us wear secondhand clothes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, that is how greenwashing would come in from here. And of course, my opinion on it is that there needs to be more transparency whereby the polluter has to actually pay more because for example, when it comes to these investors that are coming here, they're given huge tax holidays. So they're actually not paying them th- those taxes that they're supposed to pay, despite the fact that they're polluting a lot. So the polluter, in, in, in essence, is actually not doing their part, despite of them promising to give more to the country, which is wrong.
1: Yeah, in a sense, kind of that greenwashing piece from a Uganda perspective is very much like them buying these big, big corporations, buying mm. off you know, the country and just like being Definitely. like, OK, well, let us do this and we'll give you, you know, we'll provide jobs and things like that. And the point that you were making around, you know, richer countries are doing damage to the environment, especially from Uganda. I know you mentioned the East African crude oil pipeline that is currently being built. Um, so for our listeners, uh, this is the world's longest heated crude oil pipeline, which is being built and it will increase economic growth in the region, but the pipeline will disturb nearly 2,000 square kilometres of protected wildlife habitats. What are your thoughts on kind of maintaining this balance between, obviously, we've got climate change here, but then also the economy, whereby people are looking for jobs, so there is also that kind of balance. What are your thoughts on that and maintaining that balance?
2: I think it's actually quite tricky, right? Like, for example, you have just talked about the pipeline. And I remember when there we were still in negotiations about the pipeline, someone talked about how us in developing countries, we, we waited for developed countries to use um, uh, fossil fuels to develop. So it's our turn. So that was an yeah, right? Mm. That why don't they let us develop? Why, why are they forcing us to, uh, to, to adopt renewable energy? And I think it's a bit tricky in this situation whereby We want to develop, but the thing is when it comes to especially fossil fuel development, I don't know why. Always something bad happens whereby there'll be a leakage and that leakage will just pollute everything and the cleanup takes time. For one, when it comes to, like, for example, the pipeline that's coming here, there needs to be a lot of honesty. Because what's going to happen is at at least it has already started happening. People are being moved away from their homes, right? So they need to a lot of transparency whereby you're evacuating me from my home are you going to put me in the same situation as I was before you actually evacuated me something like that then also there needs to be more transparency when it comes to okay fine you're bringing a pipeline but I actually going to hire Ugandans because what happens is usually these companies will come and they'll actually bring in their own people to work oh, <laughs> so God. I, I right? Wow. <laughs> and it's not right. So that transparency is just not there. So we end up signing up for something that's not beneficial in the long run. Mm. So there needs to be that transparency in, re- in regards to all the promises. And of course, when it comes to, should it even have been here in the first place? Now that is a very, can I say, um, uh, I wouldn't want to say I do not want to speak about it because they might come for me from my home. Oh
0: God, yeah, <laughs> please, oh God, yeah, <laughs> please,
1: don't, don't, we don't want to start. Yeah, <laughs> they'll
0: <Don't> get involved. <laughs> they'll come for me from my home, but um, f- f-
2: from the from my point of view, should the pipeline have been brought to the country? I think, for one. I wouldn't say it should not have been bought, but I think all I'm hoping for is that it actually, you know, that foreign investors that have come actually, you know, promise. Uh, can I say uh, they do what they have promised because oftentimes they'll promise and they actually don't deliver. And in the end, it's actually only the people in power that benefit from this. And I think that's what most of the communities are really worried about. that The pipeline is going to come pollute their land and just leave them as is because that's what usually happens. I think we have seen that happening in Nigeria a lot because yes. Nigeria has a lot of oil. So that is what everyone here is worried about, the fact that they're going to come pollute and leave. So I just hope that that is not what happens. Of course, we have to wait and see, but right now the current situation is everyone is excited because there's that hope of they're going to give us jobs and as I told you, unemployment is quite steep in Uganda. So the fact that they're going to give people jobs, everyone is very excited about that. But fingers crossed that it all works out, though, of course, I'm quite sceptical, but as always, fingers crossed.
1: Yeah, I definitely sense your, even I'm like, oh gosh, you know, I can imagine communities (laughs) and people being, you know, thinking about employment and what you're able to do, but then you're like, history and right. you know a lot we of know these what happens have, there yeah. Yeah, yeah we know what happens yeah, there you have
2: been in the past
1: yeah you know I'm forever an optimist but when it comes to you know trusting these big corporations coming in and making like... all these promises you're a bit like oh
0: um
1: <laughs> I wouldn't 100 put 100 percent bet on this one but we'd... either
0: <laughs> so that's the thing because When we think about do we trust these companies, especially these big multinational companies, one area that in terms of when the damage that could potentially be caused from these kind of projects, an area where some African countries have been focusing on um, or could focus on at at future um, COP uh, meetings could be loss and damage funds. So just for our listeners, for those unfamiliar with the term, this is a policy that would hold richer countries and potentially even um, multinational companies. For um, directly responsible for compensating lower-income countries for any negative effects um, of climate change as a result of the work done or or climate change as a result of the development of those countries. So, for example, we've seen crop assistance for farmers in East Africa, including Uganda, facing persistent drought, as as you've mentioned, Hazel, um, and relocation aid for West Africans that are living within flood-prone settlements. So this remains a stumbling block as both the US and the EU are quite resistant to this. Would this form of climate change reparation, do you think it would be effective? I think it would. I remember, uh, actually, yes, COP26. Yes. That was something that was
2: discussed, right? And yes. I remember, I think it was the Kenyan president, and he was like, you guys, we have been waiting for the money, <laughs> but there's no money. So I, it, I, I, I keep asking myself, why is it that the countries that I would say are the most polluters are not willing to just put that money aside in case of, you know, liability, because I think it would really work. Something that's happening here in Uganda, and I, 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 I reckon for almost the whole African continent is in when it comes to like these massive impacts to climate change, we are really devastated. And the reason to that is because we just do not have the resources to Quickly mitigate as fast as, like for example, I remember there were floods in Germany, and they really mm. mitigate so mm. quickly. In Uganda, when a landslide in when a landslide impacts a community, it will take a while for that community to actually come back up. So that fund being there, and not just even the money itself, but people with the expertise to actually speed up that mitigation would really, really, really be advantageous. So I do support such a plan. But of course, as you said, it's a debate. And in my mind, I keep asking myself why it's still a debate. Mm -hmm. But I would have to to be seated with a policymaker and ask him why are we still debating about this bro. Like, why?
1: (laughs) I do wonder whether there's also a bit from kind of a US and EU perspective of Mm -hmm. actually highlighting to their populations just how much of an impact that they're having and how involved they are within the African continent do you see what I mean because you kind of have to lay yourself bare and say we've got oil here we've got this here do you see what I mean I don't I don't know but that's just
0: yeah like the transparency perhaps should be for both sides and not only for those who have been where the pipeline would be for example but also educating people from those countries because I'm sure many people don't know about Shell's activities in Nigeria for example they do not yeah
2: yeah I think that would be really good like I for example know about shells activity in Nigeria because I did a course unit called oil and gas and you know <laughs> yes. when a lot when I, I think just the devastation in all these countries I was like yo you guys have done a lot in yeah. so many countries but when that they actually even sued one of the oil, country, oil and gas companies abroad for them to be like okay fine let us compensate you for the damage that we have done I think there is that need as well, because right now, the fact that most Ugandans are very excited about the pipeline, I think it's because they have not seen the much broader picture of what can happen in case things actually go bad. But if they're educated, like, for example, you tell them, this is what happened in Nigeria, this is what happened in this country. And ironically, the same company that's coming here, the same company that did that here, they would actually start to question. So that is a very good point. Though, as I always say, how to do it? Because discourse on the oil and gas pipeline, especially public discourse, is very tricky right now because, actually, okay, no, right now it's not tricky anymore because everything is, is, is done. But before that, it was very tricky because one would be very scared about them coming for you from your home. But right now, since everything is you know signed and we're now just waiting for construction to start, this discourse can start happening. And I think when we actually start having these conversations, is when we can actively start holding this company accountable, whereby we'll be like, okay, fine, you guys, you say this, we're not seeing it, where is it? That would be
1: very, very good. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the points that I just wanted to kind of, bring back and follow up on is around the impact of kind of climate change on individuals because we do see people having to flee their homes due to adverse conditions and they're often referred to as climate refugees how do you think these moving populations will affect Uganda and potentially the wider African continent especially for example with this oil pipeline construction there's a lot of displacement there Mm -hmm. it would be good to get your thoughts on that
2: well, for one, I mean, because we already have refugees, like refugees coming from other countries, right? Wow. But from this old pipeline, how that is going to actually affect Uganda? It's actually just going to, how can I call it? Because the people that are in that region where the pipeline is going to pass, God forbid something bad happens. They will actually have to be removed from wherever they are and put, they usually put them in a camp for a while. But then the problem is with these camps, and I've seen it with the Mohocha camp where the, 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 the residents of Kasese who were put there. What's happening in there is that it's just not well kept, right? So the health impacts in that camp are really, really bad. And there was this lady, and she was crying, and she was like, I had my home. But because of what has happened, now I have to start from scratch. And then Mm -hmm. most of the kids in the camp were like, who are at school, but because there's no school in the camp, now we're just here. Mm -hmm. So, and then there was also the fact that most of them now actually just don't have a source of living. So they don't have money because you cannot work. You don't know how, you don't know what to do in the camp. So those are some of the effects that will happen in case, for example, the oil and gas pipeline has negative impact on the people themselves. Not only will they have to move, but their lives are going to be destabilized in so many ways, especially like, for example, when it comes to education. Education in Uganda is free to a point, and that is primary level education. But then I would say most people want to take their children to school where they actually pay. So if your child is in a school where you are paying and now because they have been destabilized and now they have left, your child is actually not going to have where to study from. Let's say because... You were in a place and you had a job now because something has happened. You have moved now. You don't actually have a source of income. So all these are the adverse effects that I would reckon would be really, really bad for all the people that might be destabilized because of the pipeline. And I would say it's what's happening due to the impacts of the climate crisis. And it's really sad. And as I said, because our mitigation factors, uh, our mitigation, not factors, but our mitigation strategies are not as fast these individuals are actually kept in that situation for quite longer than expected
1: so Mm. there's that need for more can I say more hands-on approach everything you're saying is just making me think about you know when we're talking about these large corporations from a UK perspective if they were going to come in and build people would be moved and like you know, I remember watching a documentary on flats that they were going to build. They were going to knock down some kind of um, council flats and build kind of new swanky apartments. And they had moved the people in kind of newer, nicer apartments. And it's just making me think that sometimes we assume that these large corporations, the way in which they treat people in countries like the UK is how they're also treating people in countries like Uganda. But it actually is not the case. There's, do you see what I mean? Like, it's just making me think that you just assume that that's what they would be doing. But actually, it's not always guaranteed that they're going to be thinking this family here, they're working, they've got a farm, but actually we're going to tear through that farm. Are we really going to be thinking about the child's school? Or, you know, it's actually yeah. they're treating everybody equally regardless of where they're from. But that is not always 100% the case.
2: Yeah, I think that also just is just attributed to, I think,
1: um, and, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but
2: I, I think... Citizens from more developed countries, you are a bit more aware of what's happening, and to a point, you just have that opportunity. Because I've seen there's so there's so many like strikes in the UK about climate. I remember there was one called um, was it Stop Campbell, and everyone was up in arms about that. And something that's happening, which I think is amazing. So there's that like that, 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 that sensitization about world you know, can i say issues that are going to directly impact people so when these corporations are coming in they actually have to make sure that they treat you they treat their citizens right which is different mm. here here <laughs> it's sad but here people are actually just not really aware of their rights so you mm. actually need to mm. tell them that this is what you deserve so this is actually what you need to ask for and that is when they'll be like okay fine this is what i want and that's how they actually just get taken advantage of. But mm-hmm. if they actually do what they deserve, then they would actually be given what they deserve.
0: But because they do not, then they
2: just don't give it to
0: them. It also explains why Africans are suffering disproportionately because of climate change, like the actions of these multinationals. And then there's the lack of awareness in the first place. But then we have organizations like what you have with climate operation and how you're able to educate the population about what's going on, which is just, yeah, things we love to see. But why do you think that whilst Africans contribute such a small percentage of the world's emissions, that the majority of these populations, as well as those in other lower income countries, are suffering disproportionately because of climate
1: change?
2: Well, I think one of the main reasons why in Africa we are actually suffering disproportionately from the effects of climate change, as I said, we cannot mitigate the Mm. impact of climate change as fast, whereby Mm. we just do not have the resources. And not even just that, right? Like, I'll again (laughs) give an example of Uganda. We have so many social issues. Really, we we do have so many social issues. We have poverty, we have unemployment, we have gender issues, we have health issues, to a point, we also have sometimes political issues. So, climate change, and because, and also that's also another issue because climate change is something that someone does not see. And it's until you're impacted by it, whereby you see it. Like, let me give an example. I live in the city. If I'm being honest with both of you, I have not been directly impacted by the climate crisis because it is hot, but I do not have a farm where I live. So I'm not going to say because of the heat I cannot, you know, farm, Mm -hmm. or because of let's say it's going to over rain, my house is going to be flooded. So all of those things, it's a climate change is just so. Outside of so many people's lives, that in their in their view, it's not something that we need to actually be talking about. And I think that's why we are so disproportionately affected by it, because one, we don't have the resources. And then to appoint our, our governments, it's just not like the top priority thing that we need to deal with, which is sad. And I think that's why always, whenever we're educating people, and even when it comes to policy, we're always encouraging policymakers view the climate crisis as something that affects all these other issues that they are currently dealing with. Like for example, when it comes to it affecting health, people who are actually facing health impacts due to the climate crisis are there. People who are, for example, who don't have jobs because their sources of livelihood have been impacted by the impacts of climate change are also there. When it also comes to women, for example, small scale farmers, majority of them are women. So encouraging them to actually solve all these other social issues that are top priority while considering how they're also being impacted by the climate crisis is something that I would always, is something that I always encourage and I also think other countries should, should do as well because then the climate crisis will now enter into the top priority agenda lists and to a point we will stop being so disproportionately affected by the climate crisis.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And you mentioned around it being thought, thought of when you're looking at different other social issues that the government is dealing with. And I think one of the other areas that we said is quite key to this is also education and making sure people understand the impact on themselves and their communities. Obviously, you're a key element of that in terms of the work you're doing with climate operation. What are your future plans for it? Where are you hoping to take it next? And Well, this is very exciting. <laughs> From the world of
2: climate operation, I said, if I'm being honest with you guys, when I said climate operation, I did not did not actually expect us to do this big work. And I think we just really winged it. And, if, and also because to our point, I'm also quite bold. So I was just willing to talk to people regardless. I, I didn't really mind if they would reject our offer. So right now I'm thinking we need to actually scale what we are doing, right? Because we have been able to educate people in Uganda. But this is a problem in so many other African countries. And not even just African countries. Because as cha- I'm, I'm having a few user interviews with people across the spectrum. So basically, educators and young people, not only in the climate space, and as chatting with a colleague of mine from the Philippines and he was telling me one of the biggest problems is that the information on climate is just not there so when it comes to them actually you know trying to educate the communities them themselves actually don't know what to tell them so when the communities ask them what should we do it's just not there so i think future plans for climate operation is just scaling our impact and not just looking at uganda but for one, targeting other African countries and hopefully other developing countries. Because I think that is something that really needs to happen. The moment people actually know the problem is when we are going to start creating relevant solutions. Because right now, all the information, for example, I'll go on the internet and search on something to do about the climate crisis but for, for my country. But unfortunately, because most of the information is very white based. I might not Mm. necessarily get the most relevant solution for my country. But if someone would be able to go on the internet or to a platform or an app and actually see that, okay, fine, this is relevant for, let's say, Uganda, and this is what these people have done, they can actually figure out something to innovate around that and really help their community. So that's the bigger picture I have for climate (laughs) operation.
1: Yes, that's honestly incredible. Like it's so, I think, being based in the UK you just think okay the solution we have is you know electric cars this that and the other but you are so right when you go on the internet I'm not saying they're bad but you know it's very much from a western perspective that I can Mm -hmm. completely understand someone going on the internet in Uganda or any other African country you're not really going to find information or solutions that's like relevant to you at all that you could actually I can implement this or and this is going to have an effect that honestly the work you're doing is is incredible we just need more more of this sort of work and we should even think about the
2: fact
0: that most people don't even have access to internet in certain communities mm. so yes it, that it, too, that that too. Out, yeah. what we need is a pan african approach solutions that
1: work for the continent
0: yes a pan african movement within the climate change space which you're i'm sure you're well on your way you're, you're one of on your way to do it. So yeah, <laughs> we're really, really excited to see where you go. Oh, thank you, Incredible. Hazel. We're so, so, so excited. Um, so happy to have had you on the show. On the Climate Operations Instagram page, we see that you do monthly recommendations. So we thought to close the show, if you could share with us what our listeners could read or watch and who we can follow when it comes to climate change. I like this Instagram page. It's called Climate Illustrated.
2: So it's basically uh, merging art with climate justice. And the reason I like it is because, you know, it proves that you can actually, you know, show your climate activism through very, very many ways. Because mm-hmm. sometimes people think that climate activism is all about, you know, climate strikes, which is not true. So the fact that I, I like Climate Illustrated is that they are merging art with, with, with climate justice. So I would recommend anyone who is interested in that to follow very good account. I I, I I love their work. Then when it comes to I did not get who to watch, but I do listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to this podcast as well. Good, I'm a big fan.
0: <laughs> love it. Thank you. <laughs> love it.
2: <laughs> but um, another podcast that I love, it's called Sustainability Defined by Jay Siegel and uh, Scott Brand. So. I love this podcast. I actually started listening to this podcast when I was back in law school and I was just trying to figure out, right, can someone from a low background do anything in climate? And the thing I like about this podcast is that it really breaks down, you know, so many sustainability, like, can I say topics? So I listened to one, which was just about sustainability careers. And the reason I listened to it was because I was just trying to figure out what can someone from a low background do in the climate space? And it really gave me very, very good direction. So I think for someone just trying to, you know, figure out their, their, their can I say, their space or their direction in climate, Sustainability find would be a very, very good podcast to listen to as well, plus this one. Then um, something to read. So there's this article that I read. It's by Violet Glazer. I, I, I hope I've said her name right. And it's on this blog called The Truth Truthout. The article is called The Climate Justice Movement Must Include Decolonization and Anti-Imperialism. So I like this article because why? For one, it really just takes someone out of that echo chamber of thinking that climate change is, you know, very white based. And it Mm -hmm. just brings out all these, for one, people of color, people in, uh, can I say, disproportionately amplified communities who are doing really amazing work. Then it also talks about how the polluters must actually be the ones who are paying the most and not the ones who are being affected to be the one to be paying the most out of that pollution. So I really like that article. So for someone that's really, you know, trying to figure out how does decolonization, anti imperialism, how does it merge with climate justice? That would be a very good mm,
1: article. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. Amazing. I just wanted to say it's been amazing having you on, Hazel. and it's just making me think this wasn't your background. You know, you started climate operations, you're <laughs> studying <laughs> law, but you saw something and were like, I need to actually mm. make a change. There's something, as you said, you 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 were learning when you set this up. And I just think it's so nice to see that there are African activism within this space yeah. um, who were just, you know, picking this up without ever just seeing that there's something out there that needs to be done and needs to be changed and people need educating and by you learning, you can teach other people and pass it on. Which is a kind of nice theme because this is why we do this podcast. Particularly those from like marginalized communities or those who perhaps
0: don't have access to the Mm -hmm. internet, for example, that's such a, something in the West where we are just like, okay, I'll just bring out my phone, but not everybody has that. So (laughs) for you to be able to, Share a message and reach with those people that would otherwise be quite isolated is just incredible. and yeah, we really wanted to just highlight and celebrate environmental activists that are African because y- you do exist <laughs> and, um, <laughs> she's real <laughs> <laughs> Because sometimes it feels like it's a very whitewashed kind of space, so yeah, we just wanted to celebrate that and yeah, hear from you, but thank you so much for. Joining us, thank you guys
2: for having me. If I'm being honest, this has been the highlight of my week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much honestly. Thank you for, for being on. It's a great conversation, and just hearing your story and hearing the impact you're having is incredible.
0: And how can our listeners find you and follow you on social media? And is there anything in particular that you'd like to promote? Well. Currently, I'm having,
2: because climate operation, we're just trying to, you know, we want to innovate, we want to scale our impact. So basically, we want to form something whereby anyone can actually find relatable climate education that's less scientific, more fun, very engaging, very collaborative. So currently, we are talking with educators, young people in the climate space, even young people that are not in the climate space. And we just want for one, just ask them, what is the problem that you're facing when it comes to educating yourself about the climate crisis? What have you used? What didn't you like about it? What do you like to see? So if anyone is interested in having a conversation, hit us up or hit me up. (laughs) I will reply to your DM. That is something that I would love for people to to, to have a conversation with. And then if anyone wants to follow Climate Operation, it is Climate Operation on Instagram. Then if someone wants to follow me on Instagram as well, it is Hazel Patricia on Instagram. I, I reckon you guys will <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put these handles. Yeah, we will. We will. Don't <laughs> worry. We'll make we sure. It.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is Hazel Patricia on Instagram. So just basically reach out to me on both platforms. And you no know, reach out to me on my personal platform. Then you can reach out to Climate Operations. Someone on the team will, will definitely send a message back and then we can just just start our conversations from there. I think we're always willing to just have these broad conversations with people because I think that's where we just get to learn. So hit us up. We're very excited
0: about that. Yes.
1: (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Hazel. Um, Yeah. Thank 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 you. you Good to speak to you.